Welcome to Star Trek Age of Discovery. I'm Adele Lawson Anderson. And I'm Gary Anderson. And we're a married couple who are longtime fans of Star Trek. Today we're breaking down Watcher, the fourth episode of season two of Star Trek Picard. We'll conclude our podcast with the latest Star Trek news. Before we begin, please remember our analysis contains spoilers. So if you haven't yet watched this episode, you may want to do so before listening to our comments. Now, Gary, let's start off with a synopsis for Watcher. Okay. The episode opens on La Serena, where Picard and Girardi make a futile attempt to communicate with Rios, Seven, and Rafi. Picard cloaks the ship and takes Girardi to his abandoned family estate to build a fire for warmth. There, he tells Girardi his family escaped to England after the Nazis took, took it over as a base during World War II. After the war, the estate was in the hands of caretakers until the family decided to return to France generations later. Picard notes the number 15 has factored into several actions that Girardi has performed. He reasons it must be a clue for their mission that she had garnered from her partial assimilation with the Borg Queen. After Girardi recalled that the ship's chronometer had read April 12, 2024, they reasoned the critical date for their mission is April 15th, giving them only three days to alter some type of event in order to stop the initiation of the Confederation. Back in Los Angeles, Seven and Rafi search for Rios. They go to Dr. Teresa's clinic and learn that he had been picked up by ICE, the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency. They go to the police station and find out that they are in the wrong place to look for someone detained by ICE. Rafi uses a tech device to identify his location at the detention center. Rafi breaks into a police car so they will have transportation. Seven reluctantly serves as the driver. Gerardi and Picard return to La Serena. Picard orders Gerardi to continue to find a way to communicate with the other members of the team. He then transports to Los Angeles to find the Watcher, a mysterious being who may be able to identify the event critical to their mission. Picard finds himself at 10 Forward Avenue, the bar run by Guinan. However, at the area now seems to be seedy and squalid, a striking contrast to when he last visited the place. Here, he finds a younger version of Guinan, but she is bitter cynic who has given up on humanity. She doesn't recognize Picard, but reluctantly listens to his story. Still, she refuses to help him and says she is preparing to leave the planet. At the detention center, Reels has a friendly conversation with Dr. Teresa before she is told she is being released. However, since Reels cannot prove his identity, he is told he must get on a prison bus to be taken to another location. Rafi's device tells her of Rio's movement with the destination being a sanctuary district on the U.S.-Mexico border. She quickly realizes they would not be able to reach him in the car. So they, as they are being hotly pursued by other patrol cars, Girardi 
contacts Rafi and Seven and is apprised of their situation. The scientist tells Seven to stop the car. Seven complies with a drawn gun. A police officer orders them to get out of the car. However, Gerardi is able to transfer them away to the side of the road where Rios's bus is approaching. Guinan gives away her dog. Picard follows her out, continuing to try to solicit her assistance. He finally tells her his name and says they will become great friends in 400 years into the future. She finally acquiesces and takes him to a park where she says they will find the Watcher. At the park, a young girl approaches who seemingly has animosity towards Guinan. Guinan explains the girl is not actually the Watcher, but someone the Watcher is using to make sure she is not being followed. The girl orders Picard to remove the energy cell from his comm badge. The Watcher uses two other people to lead Picard. He finally sees a woman with his, her back to him. He asks if she is a friend of Guinan's, and she answers, absolutely not. She turns to him, and Picard recognizes her as Laris. The Watcher places her hand on his shoulder, and they disappear in a puff of smoke. In another part of Los Angeles, at the Jackson uh, Roy Kirk Plaza, Q sits at a table reading the Los Angeles Times, which has an article about the return to space exploration. He then notices a young woman walking toward him who is engrossed in a book entitled Pallet's Son. She continues reading, sitting at a nearby table. He says, You can't do it, and you know it. Oh, sure, you played the game for a while when nothing was at stake, when the only challenge was fooling everyone into thinking you had the nerve. But now it's real. The fear is choking you. Well, here's the truth. You can't do it. People are going to die. And now your fear, your doubt, is the loudest voice in your head. Q snaps his fingers once. Then again, nothing happen happens. He comments, that's unexpected and most unfortunate. So the credits for this episode, the story for Watcher was written by Travis Fickett and Juliana James with the final script written by James and Jane Meigs. All three of them are supervising producers on Picard. The episode was directed by Leah Thompson. Travis Fickett started his writing career as a staff writer on the short-lived Fox sci-fi drama Terra Nova. He later became the executive story editor in the last season of CW's Nikita and developed 12 Monkeys for the Sci-Fi Channel. Jane Max is a producer and writer known for Bellevue and with an E and Goalie. Juliana James has been holding down two jobs simultaneously. The first is one uh, as executive story editor on the CW's Superman and Lois. She also serves as staff writer this season for Picard. Leah Thompson returned to lead the second of her two-episode block. She has been primarily directing comedy since 2013. Thompson's directing credits include Switched at Birth, Mom, Young Sheldon, Schooled, and The Goldbergs. 
During the pandemic, she began to find work in genre-themed shows such as Stargirl, Resident Aliens, and of course, Picard. So now let's move on to the analysis. So Watcher picks up the narrative pretty much from the same spot where it had ended last week. Our heroes are divided into three groups. Reels is still in custody after being picked up in an ice raid of a free clinic. Rafi and Seven are attempting to track down Reels via his combat badge, while Picard and Agnes uh, leave the ship for the Chateau Picard in search of a source of warmth while the ship is self-repairing. Although the episode's title foreshadows they will be immersed in a search for the unknown figure who may be able to help them fix the timeline and return to a restored 2401, the majority of the running time of this episode is devoted to other things. Rios is trapped in our Byzantine and broken immigration system. Seven and Rafi in a high-speed car chase. Picard meeting a disillusioned younger version of Guinan and another round of the Battle of Wills between Girardi and the Borg Queen. These are all obstacles being put in their way to keep them from resolving this problem quickly. But let's not ignore them. Each one is providing us with some insight on the main conflict or a new perspective on one of the characters. So let's start off with looking at how this episode dealt with Picard's childhood. It's amazing to see how different this season's structure is pacing is from last season. By this point last season, the writers had introduced several different competing plot lines with varying degrees of success. We had a frustrated Picard dissatisfied with his life, a mystery behind a set of female twins that were perceived as a threat, the nomadic fate of the Romulans after the destruction of their homeworld, and the exploitation of technology from the dormant Borg cube. All of this led to Picard going on a quixotic quest to repay a debt to an old friend. Now, most of the other stuff would be abandoned by this episodes by the season's end, and so so they could close out everything in ten episodes. This season, we have the introduction of the problem. The timeline has been corrupted and its solution. Picard must travel into the past to fix it in only two episodes. The other eight seem to be devoted to how he seeks to accomplish that, including the possible restoration of time and the story's resolution. That's it. But there are subtle things happening just under the surface. We keep getting teased about some unresolved childhood trauma related to Picard and his mother that is somehow connected to the reasons why we have an altered timeline in the first place. The hooded Borg queen who beamed aboard Stargazer said to Picard, look up Jean-Luc in the same way his mother suggested in Picard's childhood memory that we saw in the first episode. Later on, Q repeatedly makes an assertion that Picard is the cause of the changes in the timeline. In Watcher, we see a flashback of a frightened young Jean-Luc run through the halls of the Chateau searching for his mother one night. 
The boy has his right hand wrapped in a silk scarf or cloth. There are a series of quick cuts that include an image of his mother, a rock, someone grabbing Picard's mother, and a young boy throwing a rock at the glass wall of, an, of the arboretum. The memory refocuses us on that night, and we see Jean-Luc discover his mother. She asks the computer to play Non Je Ne Regret Rien, a song by French chanteuse Edith Piaf. We heard it earlier in episode one. She uses it to help him get rid of his fear, but as the memory ends, we see the young boy's face that his fears have not been completely dispelled. We don't know much about Picard's upbringing. Before this, we only knew that he was estranged from his father, Maurice, who he thought were, was cruel and very strict. Also, we know that he grew up with a je jealous older brother, Robert, who thought that the young Jean-Luc received too much attention and adulation. This friction at home is part of the reason why he eventually left for Starfleet. But up until this season, we really hadn't learned much about his mother, Yvette Picard. In the earlier flashbacks to Jean-Luc's childhood, it was revealed that Yvette Picard was, was in an abusive relationship with her husband, which young Jean-Luc knew about. He may have witnessed their domestic violence. Robert was nowhere to be found in the flashbacks, but Yvette clearly favored John Luke and taught him to look up. Perhaps Picard's entire life amongst the stars is in some way inspired by her. Her repeated request for her son to look up could be what fueled John Luke's desire to explore outer space. Moreover, memories of domestic violence, of his parents fighting, could explain why Picard rarely came home home to France and stayed away most of his life. Without knowing all the details, Guinan suggests that Picard spent his life running from some trauma in his past. This is what she said to him in that first scene in the, in the earlier episodes. Yes. He echoes that sentiment in this episode when Girardi inquires about what he has on his mind as he stares into the fire deeply. I'm not really sure what all of this means right now, but we do know that Picard is struggling with something unresolved from his past. And I'm interested to see how this is going to play in the story as it plays out. Yeah, me too. But let's turn now to young Guinan. In 2024, this younger version of Guinan is unfamiliar to us. She doesn't know Picard. And we're going to talk more on that later. Mm -hmm. uh, she's paranoid and far less hopeful or insightful. Also, her ability to sense any shifts in the timeline is only triggered by Picard reciting back to her something the older version of her said to him before he left in 2401. It's not too late. The problem isn't time. It's you. Yeah. So this may be another piece in the puzzle to how Picard is connected to this alternate reality. But the one thing that this Guinan still has is her empathy. That remains intact. In fact, 
that parts is the reason why she is preparing to leave Earth. Guinan is still a person who feels deeply for humanity, but that empathy is generating serious emotional pain for her. She has witnessed humanity's senseless love for conflict, our willingness to accept convenient lies over truth, and the greed of an elite few that is sustained only by the needs and wants of the many. She tells Picard, This century took off a hood and put on a suit. This Earth of 2024 has robbed Guinan of her boundless capacity to hope and her ability to inspire others. It's it's that part of her which Picard is attempting to revive. Throughout the rest of this episode, we see Guinan struggling with the decision to help Picard or not. Even though she does so reluctantly, it's clear he's gotten to her. I anticipate we, we will probably see more of Guinan in the upcoming episodes. So now let's turn to Girardi and the Borg Queen. First of all, Annie Wershing as the Borg Queen is killing it. She's carrying on the tradition of the Borg Queen as an alluring and cunning presence. The beauty of this version is the level of menace that is ever present in her. It has made for some very tense scenes so far. And as we said earlier, the enhanced screen time for Allison Peel has provided the show with a wonderful battle of wills between Girardi and the Borg Queen. The, the work writers have developed a symbiotic relationship between the two characters. It is their needs that have drawn them together. Girardi has needed certain technical assistance, such as the transporter, but she's also wanted the self-assurance and assertiveness that she sensed in the Borg Queen when she was connected to her. Likewise, the Borg Queen needs to end the silence she's been drowning in since her capture. She needs to connect, to assimilate, to begin building a collective. The current circumstances offers her only one intriguing option, the mind of Agnes Girardi. The scientist could be at the beginning of her assimilation in this time period, succeeding where an earlier attempt by another queen failed. All of this tension and unspoken desire has created some legitimately sinister scenes that play as both seduction and a willing cooperation between the two. The relationship behind us of a, it reminds us of, a, of the ancient fable, the scorpion and the frog. It tells the tale of an uneasy alliance to cross a river. Both the frog and the scorpion die when the insect stings the amphibian midway through their journey. The only explanation offered by the scorpion is, it's in my nature. The story teaches that some people can't resist their urges. The main difference in this case is that the Borg Queen has no reason to resist her urges. As the season progresses, we're going to see if Girardi can resist her own. All right. Okay, so let's move on to Reels and the immigration issue. In January of 1995, when past tense the episode from DS9, uh, premiered. Uh, I remember, Gary, you told me about a conversation you had with several friends 
who enjoyed the two-parter but thought the predictions of an authoritarian slant in America by 2024 was pure fiction. Yeah, yeah, they thought that. But the decades-long widening of the income inequality gap, growing homelessness, and other social ills of the 2020s makes it clear that those TV writers did a pretty good job of predicting the future from looking out their windows in 1995. Yeah, but science fiction really doesn't predict the future so much as it holds a mirror up to the present. Past tense did that in 1995, and to a certain point, so is this season of Picard. Specifically, from the vantage point of 2022, having experienced the rise of authoritarianism both in this country and abroad, coupled with a great consolidation of wealth and power in the hands of an elite few, I think 2024 that's being presented here in this in this season is pretty mild in comparison to what could come to be in two years from now. This is where Guinan's pessimism in humanity is justified. Just as they did on DS9, Picard is examining the social ills of the times. The way the show is addressing this is through the storylines of Seven, Rafi, and Rios. Last week we saw Seven and Rafi get beamed inside a sanctuary district where Rafi was mugged. Rios, who was injured in a fall, got picked up by ice. He is the reason we get to see into the immigration system. He serves as our surrogate. The sad thing is that the, the depiction is close to the reality many people endure daily. The undocumented people are held in cages. American citizens of Latin descent are sometimes arrested and detained against their will. Also, those who are seeking asylum are denied due process and forced to sign deportation papers they cannot read. This is done in the name of the American people. This part of the show will probably generate some controversy over the accuracy in depicting the U.S. immigration system, homelessness, and our treatment of the undocumented. Unfortunately, I think the truth is more grim than what we actually are seeing on this TV show. Yeah. Now let's move into some bits and pieces. Yeah, first, let's talk about Brenner. Okay. In the coda to the episode, we get another reference to past tense when we see Q reading the Los Angeles Times. The newspaper has a headline stating, Brenner fights unionization. The article states he opposes the potential unionization of his company. That's a reference to Christopher Brenner, a wealthy information mogul and owner of Brenner Information Systems in the early 21st century. He was the man who found Jazia Dax on the street in past tense. Next up in the bits and pieces, let's talk about the Watcher, the woman that looks like Laris. <laughs> doesn't the portal that the Watcher snatched Picard into look somewhat familiar to Star Trek fans? Mm. I mean, doesn't it look like the mode of transportation used by Gary Seven from the original series episode of Simon Earth? It would explain the mysterious manner in which she is living on Earth and the irritation at being contacted by Picard and Guinan. Also, Guinan 
in an earlier scene, called the Watcher a supervisor, which is the same title Gary Seven had in that episode from the original series. I'm just saying, the way Guinan described the Watcher sounds a great deal like Gary Seven. Um, there, and there's been a lot of callbacks and fan service in Star Trek Picard this season. If it turns out that this is true, it would be the most unexpected twist this season. All I know is when I saw that blue smoke come over and engulf them, it reminded me of the Gary of, of how Gary Seven transported. So that's what I'm saying. Oh, okay. I'm sticking it out there. Oh, okay, okay. Well, I want to talk about Q's dilemma. Yeah, what's up with Q? So another element of the show that's been teased throughout this season is really Q's disposition. Earlier, we've seen him lose his temper with Picard and strike him. In this episode, we see a confused and less powerful Q. What is the problem with our omnipotent, all-knowing, godlike being? Why are his powers not working for him? Is this related to the alteration in the timeline? Is it related to Picard? Inquiring minds want to know. So you got questions. Questions, yes. Okay. Next, let's talk about what we what was called the predestination paradox, or better known as a causal loop. With the introduction of the younger version of Guinan living in 2024 Los Angeles, the episode presented us with an example of what we call a causal loop. Guinan doesn't recognize Picard, even though they met each other first in 1893 in San Francisco in the episode Time's Arrow. The reason why Guinan doesn't recognize Picard is because of the time, the alternation in the timeline. If the Confederation exists instead of the United Federation of Planets, mm -hmm. then all the time travel adventures that we've seen in all of the TV shows of Star Trek don't happen. Right. So there is no travel back to 1893 by Picard and the crew of, of the Enterprise because there is no United Federation of Planets. That's right. And so that's the reason why she doesn't recognize him. It's a causal loop. There, that, this previous event didn't happen because something changed it. And therefore, that's the very act that, that causes her not to recognize him. All right. So was there somebody who gave you, where you first heard that, um, that term, predestination paradox? Yeah, it's... I, I, uh, Bashir says it in the uh, this DS9 episode, uh, Trials and Tribulations. I'm not really a fan of that episode. I, that's because you don't. I don't care like tribbles. I can't stand the tribbles. I love those tribbles. I stories, can't stand. So. I, I can't stand those well, tribbles. Well, we're gonna move on and talk about Soji and Elnor. Yeah, let's do that. So this might be an unpopular comment, but we think the absence of Isabriona Soji and even. Evagora's uh, Eleanor has allowed the show to focus more attention on two of the better actors in the cast who were underserved by last season, as Santiago Cabrera and Allison Pill. Both are doing more and bringing a different energy to their portrayals than we saw last season. Their respective storylines have opened up intriguing story possibilities 
that are byproducts of the central story without becoming a subplot that could overwhelm that story, as was in the, the case last season. Also, Elnor and Soji are both connected to subplots from last season that aren't really relevant to this current tale. It's obvious that the displaced Romulan storyline is shelved for now, and Soji's android adventures are better ignored or else they might remind us that Picard isn't a real boy any longer. Besides, trying to reverse his death is a good motivator for Rafi. To me, this is all good. So, one of the things that we got as a bit of information in this episode was to the a little bit more of the ancestral history of the Bacards. Yes. That the Bacards are French and British. <laughs> so that explains all those years of listening to Jean-Luc speak as if he has that clipped British accent. Right. After over 30 years, we finally have an explanation for Jean-Luc's British accent. And his family fled France after the Nazi invasion. The family escaped to England where they would live for several generations before returning to their ancestral home of the Picards. Thanks for explaining that. Right, right. I mean, you could imagine it like in the writer's room. They said, oh yeah, let's take this opportunity to explain why uh, uh, Patrick Stewart, you know, in his portrayal uh, doesn't have a French accent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, I, 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 I'm glad they did that because that does make sense. It's And it's also entertaining to see what yeah. Chateau Picard looks like in 2024, which That's is right. just a wreck. It's a wreck, <laughs> right. Well, Picard's also seated again. We must bring this up. Uh, it's getting harder for us to accept Picard as an android, even one that has been dialed down to mortal strength levels. When we are watching the show... And we get concerned about how uh, a how hard a young girl is pulling on frail Patrick Stewart, or we watch him play yet another scene seated for the majority of it. It's hard to maintain our su- suspension um, of di- of disbelief that he's an android. At times, Picard reminds me of some of the TV shows of the 1970s that starred actors who were who are better known from the 1940s and 50s. I mean, there, there are times when the watching Picard makes me think of the streets of San Francisco or the Marcus Welby MD. Yeah, and, and, the, and those references don't age us at all. No, they don't raise us at all. No, 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 because nobody understands it. But, you know, th- those are shows that starred older actors in the lead and specifically Carl Malden and Robert Young, respectively. And they were paired with, at that time, younger actors like Michael Douglas and James Brolin, who are now the elders. They're now the elders, right. Right, right. right. And they they would do all the action. So, for example... They would do the running. They would chase after the big guy. Yeah, they would get into the fights. And then the older lead actor would show up at the end. That's right. Yeah, so the older actor kind of brought the brain power and the younger actor supplied the muscle. Yeah. That seemed to be the division of responsibilities on Picard as well. So we're very happy the producers of the show decided to go right into production with season three so that story can be concluded 
while Picard still has the stamina to do it. Right, right. I mean, I mean, come on. I mean, you saw this episode. I mean, he was really sitting down a lot. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, I mean, he can do that with Professor X because Professor X is in a wheelchair. <laughs> <laughs> but it does kind of undercut, you know. And the fact that he's an android. He's an android, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, anyway. Okay. Well, let's move to the Easter egg segment. And there were plenty to pick from, but Gary, why don't you go first? Okay, well, as we have said before, earlier in this episode, um, we saw Q in a plaza that was named Jackson Roy Kirk Plaza. Mm-hmm. Longtime friends may remember that name. Roy Kirk was an early 21st century scientist who created the Nomad space probe the artificially intelligent machine that was sent out with a mission to seek out new life in 2002. Roy Kirk's ambition was to build a perfect thinking machine which was capable of independent logic. You know, Spock described him as one of the most brilliant but erratic scientists of his time. So you may remember that in the episode, The Changeling from the original series, Nomad was merged with Tan another satellite that had become damaged. And Mm -hmm. when it encountered the Enterprise, it mistakenly took Captain Kirk, last name Kirk, as its creator, giving this because of the similarities in the name. As a result, it it ceased to its hostilities against the crew of the Enterprise, but then eventually it figured it out. it makes they make the mistake it finally figures out it made the mistake and so kirk has to use that against the device nomad's not realizing that he had made a mistake with the catch the of his character later on causes him to actually have to be self-destructive because he's not a perfect object right he's not perfect so they talk him yeah. into actually ending himself so you know it's a silly little episode but um, well, I like it. I like do it you? anyways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, okay. you're right. It, it's silly, but I do. All I know is that prop that is Nomad that floats around. Right. We get to see that later on in, in <laughs> other episodes connected to other devices in the show. Right. Well, but, I want to talk about Guinan, okay? Yeah. So I I must admit, when I first saw you know the young Guinan pull out a pump-action rifle when dealing with Picard... I not only thought it was a, an egregious, you know, act, considering she was dealing with and uh, somebody who was, he's supposed to be, what, 91? He's supposed to be 91 in the show, but he but Picard is, I mean, Patrick Stewart is actually 81. He's going to be 82 in July. Yeah, yeah. Not really a threat. And, and I really <laughs> felt, yeah, it was completely out of character for an L. Orion. However, Gary did remind me that this gesture was a callback to a fourth season TNG episode entitled Night Terrors. So foolish me, I, I went back and I looked at it. You looked it at it, again. didn't you? You know, and I said, oh, yeah, yeah, right. I forgot about this one. Um, and I understood after I saw it why I had put it out of my mind. Not counting the first season of TNG, Night Terrors, 
was one of the weakest episodes of the series. The story dealt with the crew becoming more and more irritable because they were no longer able to experience realm, the realm stage of sleep. At one point, the crew is confined to Ten Forward as one of the designated shelter areas on the ship while a solution is being found to their malady. When tempers begin to flare, Guinan calls for security. A fight ensues and Guinan gets everyone's attention when she pulls out a laser rifle and fires it into the ceiling on a starship. Like, yeah. why would you do that? You know? So, uh, yes, it was the ceiling. I suppose that made as much sense as Guinan in the 21st century thinking she needed a rifle for protection against a uh, 90-ish year old man. Yeah, well, there you have it. <laughs> well, let's go to Star Trek news. Sure, Gary. go right ahead. All right, oh, you want me to go? Yeah. All right, I'll go first. go first. All right, so the latest installment of the Ready Room began with a feature on Ito Avgrev, who played the younger version of Guinan in the Watcher episode. Um, then, Will Wheaton interviewed Leah Thompson, who directed the last two episodes of Picard. This was followed by a featurette featuring Picard cast members to give glowing comments about what it was like to work with Thompson. The episode ended with a teaser for the fifth episode of Picard Season 2. Well, here's another uh, news item because we didn't have a lot of news items. Yeah, I can tell because I'm wondering why we're talking about this one. Again. Uh -huh. But uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture. So Paramount has released the official trailer. Uh, <laughs> oh, of God. The, well, it calls it, in the press release, it calls it a cinematic masterpiece. Now, come on. Since when? <laughs> well, as I have said also on the podcast... This was one of the major disappointments of my life when I first saw this film. So I mean, you can clean up a pig, but it's still a pig. It's still a pig, <laughs> yes. Uh, but, um, so the Star Trek The Motion Picture, the director's edition, will be coming out on Paramount Plus on First Contact Day, April 5th. But the trailer was made available last Thursday on StarTrek.com. In 2001, David Fine produced the director's edition of the 1979 Robert Wise-directed film. The original film garnered an Academy Award nomination for Best Visuals, Best Art Direction, and Best Music, as well as Original Score. I'm stunned by that. <laughs> <laughs> the latest update has been enhanced to 4K Ultra HD, with a Dolby Vision HDR tuning and a Dolby Atmos atmosphere um, soundtrack. After six months of intensive remastering, the film is ready. You know, if they got time and money to do this, why don't they just go and do the seven seasons of Deep Space Nine? That's what I want. I don't want this. All right. So while Paramount Plus subscribers will have the opportunity to stream the director's edition, it won't be uh, your only chance to see the film. The new remastered version will also be in theaters May 22nd, 23rd, and 25th. Tickets for these showings will go on sale April 8th from Phantom Events. Mm. 
So in closing, we'll be back next week with our review of the fifth episode of season two of Star Trek Picard. Before we sign off, we would like to remind you to share a link to Age of Discovery with people you know who enjoy Star Trek as well. And, and those of you who have, we want to thank you for that because we've seen our numbers tick up. So thank you. So until that time. Like, subscribe, and follow Star Trek Age of Discovery on Twitter and Instagram at Star Trek AOD. That's one word. Facebook. And at our website, StarTrekAOD.net, where we offer additional articles on Star Trek canon, interesting sidebar issues, and other aspects of the show. Also, email the show at StarTrekAOD at gmail.com. But until then, live long and prosper.